Lord, even from tonight, Lord, may there just be substantial growth in our body. Lord, anyone from our body that you you would desire them to be down here tonight, Lord, but they're just choosing things from the world, God. Lord, just stir them to be here, God. Stir them to come fellowship with the saints. Lord, just think of just people in our body who are hurting even tonight, Lord. We just pray you'd comfort them. Think of just Arlene here, just the loss of her son this last week. And Lord, that just the God of comfort would be near her in this place, Lord. That she wouldn't be distracted from you with just the pain, Lord, but she'd actually draw near to you because of the pain tonight, Lord. And she'd just find you to be just such a God of peace and the God of all comfort. Lord, Danielle, just still mourning the loss of her mom. and Lord, just people whose marriages are suffering and just seem at a, at a DEFCON 4 level or whatever, just glowing red with just danger zone, Lord, in their marriage. Would you just, Lord, let them hear from you tonight or let them just come to be here tonight, Lord. Lord, that you might just touch their home, Lord. Lord, even the young ones that are here tonight, just give them a, just a, a palette for your word as we dig in. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hebrews 5. Been uh, continuing on with this theme of Jesus is superior as there was a group of Hebrews, uh, not specifically one church, but uh, this letter went out to uh, uh, a group of Hebrews uh, over a region who had been persecuted and had begun to experience um, just the pressure from their homes and their communities of uh, as they've left the machine and religious machine of Judaism to follow Jesus of Nazareth as their savior, as the Messiah, and as they'd been doing that, they were just experienced and beginning to experience uh, just persecution and suffering for his namesake. And many of them were tempted to leave uh, Jesus, the Messiah, and go back to the comfortable life of, uh, of Judaism in Israel. And um, as they do that, the author here writes uh, in comparison to many of the elements that they would find attractive and revere, uh, he compares Jesus to those things. So we've seen so far uh, a comparison between Jesus and the prophets that they revered so much, and Jesus and the angels uh, that they just borderline idolized, and uh, Jesus and Moses, Jesus and Joshua, Jesus and the Sabbath rest we looked at um, uh, a few weeks ago, Jesus, uh, the high priest, as we began, began to look at last week. And so uh, uh, as the Israelites had such a reverence for the great high priest or the high priest of the Old Testament, um, we're going to see a period of about six chapters where the author uh, compares Jesus with the high priest and shows him to be superior in many different ways. Um, as we look at the high priesthood 
of Jesus. I just encourage you guys not to shut down. It's easy to do as we go through the book of Hebrews because you think that this is something that's only for the Jews to read. Um, But really, this is, uh, though it's the most Old Testament of the New Testament books, uh, it's written for us today as well. And, um, you know, as you read the Old Testament, it's good to just have an understanding of these things because uh, while the Old Testament is the Messiah concealed, uh, the New Testament is the Messiah revealed. And so even a book like the most Old Testament of the New Testament books is going to show how Jesus is concealed in the Old Testament. And there were many things that were pointing towards his coming and redeeming the world. Um, In the next couple weeks, I'd encourage you to read Leviticus 8 through 10 and chapter 16 for homework um, so that you can have a better background of what the uh, writer is uh, assuming upon. And uh, some of us have a good grasp of it from this last year reading through the Pentateuch in our fasting time. But uh, as you read this, don't make the Bible any more complicated than, uh, than it's meant to be. Uh, it's not a secret book. It's not something that like you've got to have the Omega code for, you know, and like, you know, put this capital letter over with this punctuation mark and you've got this new great message, you know. No, it's just read it. Read it and let the Holy Spirit minister to, you, to your heart in its historicity, in its poetic chapters and books, uh, in its um, books of law. Um, and, and understand that God has something for you as you read those things. As we look at the high priest in the next few chapters, we're going to see God instituting the sacrificial systems so that his people could understand his character and the wonder of redemption. Uh, that uh, all of this sacrificial system is pointing forward to its fulfillment in who? in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Uh, As you read the Old Testament, you come across uh, a lot of killing of animals, a lot of blood. Man, do you remember reading through those chapters during the fast? And it was just like, and just dump the blood up against the altar. And you're like, oh, oh, mm, oh. You know, (laughs) some of us aren't used to that unless you're, uh, you know, a hunter or a soldier or something, but, or a, a... paramedic, but um, all of that blood and all of that death is to point to uh, an understanding for us that everyone would know how costly sin is, that sin is punishable by death, and that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. It's all pointing towards that for us, even as New Testament Christians, to remember how costly sin is, that its punishment is death. And without someone's blood being shed, we wouldn't be forgiven. And so as we look in these chapters, uh, we start out in chapter 5 with the qualifications for a high priest. Uh, If you wanted your son to grow up and be a high priest, you'd have him read this chapter. Uh, And we'll see that he wouldn't be able to be one unless he was a Levite anyways, so... Um, but, but this is really where those qualifications are found. Uh, in this chapter, as we look at uh, verses uh, 1 through 4 of chapter 5, we see Aaron's qualifications for his earthly priesthood. Uh, in verse 1, it says, For every high priest taken from among men is appointed for men in things pertaining to God 
that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. So uh, first thing you could note, a qualification for a high priest was that they would come from among men. Uh, it's one reason that we studied in chapter um, chapter. Two, I'm sorry, I'm blanking out a little bit. Chapter two, Jesus became a man so that he could be our high priest. The end of chapter two, verse 17 points to that. And if you just want to flip back a couple pages in your Bible, uh, you read chapter two, verse 17, that in all things, he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So Jesus had to be made like his brethren so that he could fulfill the, uh, what was prophesied of the Messiah, that he would be prophet, he would be king, and he would also be his people's priest. Uh, so uh, it would, this high priest would come from among men, taken from among men, as verse 1 says, in that they'd experience the same pressures in life. They'd understand other men because they were another man. They were able to be a good advocate because they'd lived in the same environment as the people that they were representing to God. Second thing we read in verse 1 is that they were appointed for men two things pertaining to God. They were ordained in a sense. This priest would enter into the Holy of Holies once a year. And as you study the garments he would wear, it's really a beautiful thing because he would wear on, on his chest a breastplate with the 12 tribes of Israel symbolized with 12 different precious stones. He would carry into the Holy of Holies the nation of Israel on his chest over his heart. And as you look the, at the ephod he wore, there were shoulder Plates And the shoulder plates would have the names of the tribes of Israel written. And so he went in representing men to God. And as he did that, he carried them on his shoulders. He carried them over his heart. He was appointed for these individuals. He would make intercession for the people. Third thing we read is that the high priest would offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. A lot of different types of gifts would be offered up. But before they were uh, to offer up gifts for other people, because they were sinners, they had to offer up a sacrifice and a gift for themselves as well. I read about this in Leviticus 16. If you jump over a couple chapters in Hebrews 8, 3, it says, Every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, it is necessary that this one also have something to offer. So any high priest that came out of uh, the loins of Aaron would have to offer something up for himself as well because he was a sinner. And something that's so beautiful as the chapters unfold in Hebrews before us, uh, we'll, we'll compare Jesus and his status of sinner or not a sinner uh, as well as uh, his sacrifice that he'll offer compared to the sacrifice that the Aaronic priest would offer, uh, as well as how often he would have to offer his sacrifice compared to how often the Aaronic priesthood would have to offer theirs, as well as where they offered it. All right? And so um, it's just really exciting as you go through the next six chapters to see, comparing Jesus, uh, our great high priest, with that of the Levitical priesthood. 
Uh, as you look at verse 2, it says, He can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray, since he himself is also subject to weakness. Does anybody read that and just <sighs> find comfort in that? I mean, I certainly don't read that and go, oh, thank goodness, you know, he's compassionate to those ignorant people out there who are weak and go astray. When I read that, I know who it's written for. <laughs> this guy, Ignoramus Rogers right here, weak Rogers, so prone to wander, as the hymn writer said. And the high priest has compassion on people like me, and hopefully you can you recognize that in yourself as well. People like you. The high priest's qualification that we read in verse 2 was that he was to have compassion or sympathy on the ignorant and the wandering. The high priest had to have a heart that would match their hands as they served. A genuine sense of empathy and sympathizing with the people that they would serve for. They would have this sense of weakness of the people they were ministering for as they went into the Holy of Holies to offer up sacrifice. And since the high priest would know that he himself was a sinner, it would save him from being too harsh and too severe over the people he ministered to and for. He had compassion, or literally he could deal gently with and for these individuals. One uh, lexicon says in the Greek that it's literally that dimension of attitude that is held in tension between apathy on the one hand and undue aggravation on the other. And so because this high priest was a man, he could sympathize because he struggled. He would, could be tempted. He had to sacrifice for his own sins. He was t uh, went through the same thing that the other men went through. And he was able to not be too severe, but also not be apathetic. Just kind of throw his hands up in the air and, and uh, ah, forget about it. This sacrifice stuff is going to go on forever. No, but he'd realize, yeah, he needed it for himself as much as they needed it. So he would deal gently with those who failed to understand, who seemed to just not know. To those who were going astray, who would wander about and stray from the truth. Those of us that are in ministry, it's a good word for us as we serve on behalf of the people and labor for the people. As we, as Paul says in Philippians, are poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of our fellow Christians' faith. That we wouldn't get frustrated with these individuals that seem to just keep falling and failing. But that we would have compassion on them just as he has had compassion on us. This high priest in the, in the Old Testament was one who was also subject to weakness. And you can just flip over two chapters to Hebrews 7, 28. Where it says, the law appoints as high priest men who have weaknesses. But the word of the oath, which came after the law, appoints the son who has been perfected forever. And so this theme that we're kind of getting a glimpse of as we even jump ahead and look at these other chapters, this theme of Jesus being better. Those that were sons of Aaron had weaknesses, but the one who was a man and dwelt among us as a man, the son had been perfected forever. 
Let's look at verse three. Because of this, he is required as for the people, so also for himself to offer sacrifices for sins. And I've alluded to this a little bit, but just every high priest, before he went in with the sacrifice for everybody else, he had to spend special time killing an animal for himself. And there's probably a few people in this room who've done hunting and gone hunting and have killed animals. And, uh, you know, the first few times, and for me, every time, whenever I'd been hunting, it's just, it's kind of a sober moment. I always take a time and just thank the Lord for providing meat for my freezer, you know, and, and just, uh, you know, don't want to just brutally slaughter anything, you know, I'm just thankful. But it's, it's interesting to watch the life go away in an animal, right? And so as the high priest would have to uh, drain the blood and prepare this sacrifice, he had to think about uh, the wages of sin being death, how costly that sin was, and that without the shedding of blood, there was no remission for even his own sin. Let's turn back to Leviticus chapter 9. And look at verse 7. Not here in many pages turn. Let's make it loud just so I know. Oh gosh, my Bible's getting, oh, there we go. Oh. <laughs> Wednesday nights, they're interesting sometimes. Some of you came in from work and you're just like, oh my gosh, we're really going to look at the high priest. That is like, <laughs> Woo, let's get pumped about it. I saved a picture for you guys today so you could, you know, kind of picture it a little more, but I forgot to put it on there. So if Madison wants to look through my Dropbox folders in the Hebrews section of my Bible studies folders, you might find it and can upload it for us. Did you get that? Leviticus 9.7, Moses said to Aaron, go to the altar, offer your sin offering and your burnt offering and make atonement for yourself and for the people. Offer the offering of the people and make atonement for them as the Lord commanded. Now flip over to Leviticus 16.6. Where we read, Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering, which is for himself, and make atonement for himself and for his house. And then uh, just a couple of verses later in verse 15, he shall kill the goat of the sin offering, which is for the people, Bring its blood inside the veil, do with that blood as he did with the blood of the bull, and sprinkle it on the mercy seat and before the mercy seat. And so as he would do this, you know, he would be prevented from being too severe with the people or too apathetic with the people. It kept this right balance of sobriety in his heart realizing this ministry that he had for the people. In Hewitt's commentary, he says, it is necessary for him to avoid undue severity, for he is under the same condemnation. Yet as God's representative, he cannot be too lenient, for God never overlooks sin. So the high priest had a role that's similar to a mother or a father. We have this tension between being too severe with our children or being too apathetic. You know, as we just strive to be led by the Spirit and empowered by the Spirit and governed by the Word on how to discipline our children and bringing them up in the training and admonition of the Lord, there is that tension though. And if you're a parent, you've felt it. The high priest had that same tension there. You know, where the, the prophet Isaiah in chapter 42, verse three, 
he writes this, and it's something that would later on be quoted in the book of Matthew as a messianic prophecy, where it's speaking of Jesus, where it says, a bruised reed he will not break, and a smoking flax he will not quench. That's our, that's our great high priest. You know, people that just in their walk with the Lord, they've, it's been a rough week, you know. It's been a rough day, and you're just stumbling and bumbling in your walk with Christ. And what comfort that our high priest has been there. Our high priest has been there. And so if you're like a reed that's just like some of these reeds up here in this basket that's somehow bent in the middle, and it's just like, you know. I mean, I'd get the scissor out. Get rid of that thing. It's so ugly. I've heard that from some of you about these plants. Don't do it. And the Lord, man, he just, he doesn't break it. He just brings it back up and he, you know, he heals it and mends it. You know, or if our, if our candle, you know, it's, there's no flame and there's a little spark and it's kind of smoking, you know, Jesus doesn't do the all, mm, psst, get out of here, you know, man, he's, <laughs> that's our great high priest. He's patient. He understands. He's not too lenient. He doesn't wink at sin by any means, but he's also not too severe. Verse four, we see no man takes this honor of being high priest to himself, but he who is called by God, just as Aaron was. So a qualification for someone from Aaron's lineage was that they were to be specially called by God. No one could say, oh man, how come Aaron always gets to offer up the sacrifices? There couldn't be that jealousy because God in his sovereignty called the tribe of of Levi to be that uh, ministry group. And it's similar today. We can't be jealous over other people's gifts because 1 Corinthians says that they are given out as the Holy Spirit wills for the edification of the body. Go back to Exodus 28, second book of the Bible. Exodus 28. Let's look at verses one through four. Now take Aaron, your brother, and his sons with him from among the children of Israel, that he may minister to me as priest, Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab, Abihu, Elamazar, and Ithamar. And verse two says, and you shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty. So you shall speak to all who are gifted artisans, whom I've filled with the spirit of wisdom, that they may make Aaron's garments to consecrate him, that he may minister to me as priest. And these are the garments which they shall make, a breastplate, an ephod, a robe, a skillfully woven tunic, a turban, and a sash. So they shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, and his sons, that he may minister to me as priest. So who is it that's speaking there? It's the Lord speaking to Moses. He's calling forth Aaron and his sons and his son's sons to minister before the Lord as priests. No man could just go to priest school to become a priest. You were born into it. If you wanted to be a farmer or some other occupation, that wasn't your calling. You were called to minister to the Lord for the people. And Numbers 1640 says this. You don't have to flip there. I know you're getting blisters on your fingers from turning so much. It says, no outsider who is not a descendant of Aaron should come near to offer incense before the Lord that he might not assume like Korah and his companions, just as the Lord had said to him through Moses. So in this office of being a priest, 
you didn't get to just do whatever you wanted, appoint whoever you wanted. You couldn't just be one. It was the Lord who called you to be a priest. And you can go to secular history and find it chronicled very clearly within history, the fall of the Hasmonean house, high priests were promoted and appointed successfully by Herod the Great. From BC 37 to 4 BC, Herod, who had no right, according to the scriptures, would appoint high priests. That's who did it. And he would appoint whoever he wanted. The president shouldn't have that right. The queen didn't ever have that right. Herod never had that right. It was sovereignly laid out in the law of the Lord. Only the Lord had that right. Going on through that, the Roman governors from 6 AD to 41 AD would appoint all the high priests. From 41 to 66 AD, Herod and his family said, we're going to do it. We're going to take care of the high priests. And so as the people would read the letter of the Hebrews, they weren't really accustomed to this. This wasn't their culture. The, The law is what I'm saying. Their culture was just the political figures would establish the high priesthood according to whatever suit their fancy and promote their politics. And instead of people being represented in matters of God, the priests were then representing the political establishment. And so you just see how just sin just twisted what God intended for the priesthood. And then we have, even within religion, people twisting what God intended for the priesthood. Even today, the Catholic and Orthodox priests are often seen as mediators between God and man. And on a regular basis at Mass, they, within their own catechism, within their own uh, bylaws, if you will, blanking on the word right now, it says that every time they have a Mass all over the world, they again offer up Jesus' body and blood. His actual body is actual blood. They believe that to be true every time. And if you think how many thousands of times that happens around the world at a Mass... Um, you see we've, we've fallen short from especially the New Testament and what we read even in the book of Hebrews. We'll look at that. But people look to the high priest to offer sacrifices, even today within Catholicism. And they have this attitude of, and even in orthodoxy, uh, that the high priest is better than me, but he's not better than Jesus. And so he relates to me better than Jesus relates to me. And so I'm going to pray to him and I'm going to let him offer up sacrifices. And it's drifted away from what the book of Hebrews tells us is so beautiful and so special about Jesus becoming a man and Jesus becoming high priest. And so it's a good lesson for us, even at Calvary Chapel, not to set aside the Bible and put together a plan of how God's church should be led because then we get into chaos. And John Calvin says, As it is the promise of God to govern the church, so he reserves for himself alone the right to lay down the order and manner of its administration. And so, in humility, I would share about the priesthood that the Pope has instituted that's fabricated by man. It's not New Testament, uh, something we've learned from the New Testament. That the Pope would appoint priests to make sacrifices. He's out of the will of God. There's truth and there's not truth. And we need to know which is which. They've deviated from the truth. And today we have an age that is worldly, pluralistic, tolerant, coexist. 
Tolerance is on the throne and truth is its footstool when it needs to be flipped around where truth would be on the throne and tolerance would be its footstool. In the fulfillment of Jesus's priesthood that we read about in Hebrews chapter five, chapter seven, chapter eight, chapter nine, chapter 10, there is a negation of any other kind of priesthood. That's the New Testament. Jesus has fulfilled the priesthood entirely. And many men and women are held in darkness in this issue. And and if they're placing their faith and their trust in a man, then they've fallen from grace as the Galatians are warned of. It's something that many of the reformers shed their blood and and laid down their lives for, standing up for truth and standing up for the scriptures. And uh, it's just sad to see their blood uh, being shed in vain as we compromise the truth of the sufficiency of the ministry of our great high priest. And so we've looked at in these first four verses, the qualifications for the Aaronic priesthood. You guys like that? Aaronic, not ironic, Aaronic. The Aaronic priesthood. And now we kind of tweak a little bit and we look at the qualifications for the Melchizedekian priesthood. You like that? Can you say it? Melchizedekian. Okay, don't try to spell it. Don't let it trick you or blow your brain yet, okay? We'll get there in chapter 7. Because now we see how Christ meets the qualifications that we've read of a high priest in the first four verses, but it's applied and transposed to another priestly line, that of Melchizedek. And in verse 5 we see, Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest, but it was said to him, You are my son, today I've begotten you. And so in Jesus's priesthood through Melchizedek, we have a greater calling than that of the Aaron priesthood in that he is of sonship and it has a longer duration, we see in verse six and has a a better order, you see in verse six. We'll get there. But Jesus didn't glorify himself to become high priest. This isn't a matter that he tried to take on himself that many men even try to do today. In John chapter eight, verse 54, Jesus says, I don't honor myself. My honor to myself is nothing. It's my father who honors me. In verse six, he says in another place, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And we'll see all that in chapter seven of Hebrews where uh, the tribe that Jesus is from is, is addressed in his priestly duties. But look at verse seven, who in the days of his flesh, when he'd offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear, just put a to be continued on that thought there. Uh, we have Jesus's example of, of great high priest compassion there and his suffering in verse seven and obedience we'll see in verse eight. Do you guys remember a time when our great high priest offered up prayers and supplications to the Lord with vehement cries? Anybody remember anything? Or tears to him who's able to save him? The garden of Gethsemane. And in Luke, if, you, if you're good, flip over there. If, if you're good at flipping, that is. Because I wanna read that account of these prayers, these supplications, these vehement cries and tears 
to the Father. In Luke twenty two thirty nine, coming out, twenty two thirty nine, coming out, he went to the Mount of Olives as was his, his, he was accustomed, and his disciples also followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, "Pray that you may not enter into temptation." And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Then an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him, and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. So as our great high priest was preparing to offer up his sacrifice, we see his deep level of compassion. We see his deep level of suffering. We see his deep and great level of obedience with these vehement cries and tears. A cry from the actual sacrifice place from Psalm 22, 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you turned your face from me? Why has fellowship been severed right now as the sins of the world are placed upon his shoulders? He cried out to him who's able to save him from death. Jesus even said, don't you think I can pray right now to my father and he'll provide me with a legion of angels? Though he was a son, verse 8 tells us, Hebrews 5, 8, though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. Philippians tells us that Jesus was obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. One commentary says, as the son, he was always obedient to the father's will, but the special obedience needed to qualify him as our high priest, he learned experimental. Am I saying that right? Experimentally, while well, I'm reading it, so... That's on them. The special obedience that was needed to qualify him as our high priest. Get this. He learned experimentally. There we go. Thank you. I can hear Suzanne going, oh my gosh. When am I going to get married and get out of here? Okay. Soon, soon. In his practical suffering, he was obedient already before his passion. But he stooped to a still more humiliating and trying form of obedience then. The Greek adage is pathemata, mathemata. Sufferings and disciplinings, praying and obeying, as in Christ's case, ought to go hand in hand. The Phillips translation of verse 8 here says he had to prove the meaning of obedience through all that he suffered. We can look at Jesus and see the meaning of obedience proven. He learned by his sufferings just what obedience to his father involved in practice. Of course, he knew he's God. And I had a, a brother come up a few Wednesday nights ago, and Chad was there, and it was really cool because this guy's thinking, he's like, hey, you said Jesus became a man so that he would know what it's like to be a man and to be betrayed and to suffer. And he already knew he's God, he's omniscient, and that's true. But the word know in the Greek is gnosko, which means to know by experience. As God, he knew it, I and mean, he could write the equation like, like a beautiful mind, you know. 
but he experienced it, that he might be a faithful high priest, that he might sympathize with us. He understood just what obedience to the Father involved in practice. That he who was obedient by his very nature, his nature was obedience. He learned the significance and the implications of obedience as he walked the path of everyday life. Jesus, in his earthly pilgrimage from his birth until his death, learned the significance and the implications of his obedience. Verse 9 says, And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. In his fully experienced perfection, obedience, he became, it, it was done, it was finished, the author of eternal salvation. Sometimes at the pulse, we'll be praying, and after worship, we'll just spend some time praying out the names of God. And sometimes we forget ones like these. Lord, that you are the author of eternal salvation. Or as chapter 2, verse 10 says, that he was made the captain of their salvation, perfect through sufferings. You're the captain of our salvation. You're the author of eternal salvation. And you were perfected in sufferings. Not moving from disobedience to obedience. He's God. He's holy. He walked in the very path of obedience all his life. Nor was he moving from imperfection to a fresh experience of perfection. But as one man said, there is a perfection that results from having actually suffered, and it is different from the perfection that is ready to suffer. Our great high priest was given this title, this badge of perfection that was a result of him actually suffering. So our great high priest has a greater completeness than that of the Levitical priesthood. He was perfectly fitted to the office of high priest, fully qualified to be a savior and to be the representative to man, for man. That's the emphasis of the writer here. But notice at the end of verse nine, it says he became the author of eternal salvation to all, but there's not a period after that word all. You gotta read the rest of the verse. It's to all who would obey him. Those people who obey Christ are the ones whose lives and their testimonies show that the gospel of grace has transformed them. Those who would live in a consistent life of unbelief and disobedience, no matter what they say, give no visible, effective evidence to any reality that they've been changed by the Spirit of God, a work that God's grace brings about. Jesus himself says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. John Brown of Scotland said, there is, there can be no salvation through Christ to men and women living and dying in unbelief, in penitence, and disobedience. 
F.F. Bruce wrote, there is surely something appropriate in the fact that the salvation which was procured by the obedience of the Redeemer should be made available to the obedience of the redeemed. Obedience is necessary. Obedience is something that is a fruit of the Holy Spirit living in us. To those who obey Christ. You know, my son, and I talk about him all the time, but he's just all about knowing if people love Jesus. Does he love Jesus? Does he love Jesus? Does he love Jesus? And today there was a man that we were around and talking to and he said, does he love Jesus? I was like, no, he doesn't love Jesus. And that's just so shocker because the guy is not like wearing a Ku Klux Klan outfit or swastikas tattooed on his forehead or something like that, you know. Uh, He's not like, I hate Jesus, you know. Russell's like trying to comprehend that. Like, he doesn't love Jesus, not even a little bit. And just explaining to him, like, son, Jesus says, if you love him, you'll obey him. If you love him, you'll believe him. If you love him, you'll obey his commandments. And I just said, this individual doesn't believe Jesus. And just explaining to a six-year-old, Jesus says, you're either for me or against me. And I wonder how many people, if the question was put to them, would be able to signify by their life, by their obedience, that they are for Jesus. Or if their actual experienced life would show that they actually are enemies of the cross. Verse 10 says that he's called by God as high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. So remember that Levitical priesthood, they were called by God. They didn't assume this to themselves. It's the same with our great high priest. He was called by God. According to this order we find in Genesis chapter 14, verse 11, of whom we have much to say, and it's hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. There's a ton of exciting things to say about Melchizedek from Genesis 14. Can you believe that? Can you believe that? Like, oh, let's get pumped up about Melchizedek. What does the Holy Spirit have for us to learn? And Yet oftentimes you hear the trombone, you know, just like, oh, not really stoked about this. And may the Holy Spirit make us excited tonight. We're not going to study Melchizedek tonight because that actually comes about in chapter 7. Because the author here of Hebrews pushes pause and goes off on a tangent for a second. He says, I would love to tell you about Melchizedek. There is so much to say about this foreshadowing of the great high priest and this Christophany in the Old Testament. Perhaps Melchizedek in Genesis 14 is actually Jesus. There's a lot of things that would point to that being so. But you're not ready for it. You're not ready for it because you've grown dull of hearing. Literally, you're lazy. May the Holy Spirit wake us up tonight. That we would be ready. Bring it, Rory. I want to hear about Melchizedek if it takes another two hours. Don't worry, it's not. Next week it will. Not this week. Lord, keep us from being dull of hearing. Lazy. Not applying it from our ears to our hearts. In Matthew 13, 15, Jesus says that the hearts of the people have grown dull and their ears are hard of hearing. Their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn, so that I should heal them. 
When Jesus was in his ministry and he was preaching the gospel of the kingdom, people looked at him with a thousand yard stare. It wasn't what they wanted. In his own hometown, we saw this. And flip over there, Matthew 13, 54. When he'd come to his own country, he taught them in their synagogues so that they were astonished and said, and you think that's good, right? Wow! It's the bad kind of astonished. (laughs) Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? And his sisters, are they not all with us? Where then did this man get all these things? So they were offended at him. But Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his own country and in his own house. Now he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. At first, these people were astonished. I love that that word means struck dumb with a holy fear, sudden fear or terror. I mean, he's doing this and this is the guy they went to grade school with, you know. This is the guy they, they played with. They knew him. And they begin to go on this tangent of, isn't this his mom and this is his dad and we're so familiar with his siblings? Who does he think he is telling us these things. Really, you know, there was a call to repent in everything that Jesus said. They were confronted with their depravity and their need for the Savior, him himself being it. The problem that the Nazarenes had here was that they had grown too familiar with Jesus. What a striking thought. Too familiar with Jesus So often we think we know all there is to know about Jesus. We've heard all the stories. We've heard the sermons. I'm sure many of you could come up here and teach this sermon maybe better than I could. All right? You've got the information down. It's downloaded. You've got the verses memorized. The clever Christian cliches flow effortly off your tongue. I saw this a lot as a high school pastor with Kids that would grow up in Christian school or even homeschooled had all the information up here, but there was no appearance of it ever affecting their heart. When intimacy becomes simply familiarity, then Jesus is simply and only a man with a dad and a mom and a bunch of brothers and sisters. And may the Holy Spirit guard us against that. Listening to Alistair Begg today in the drive-thru of taco time. (laughs) And Lindsay and I were like, stop it, we got to write that down. Oh, it struck home for us. Those who love the gospel and love its truth will love to be stirred by its truth over and over and over again. May it never come out of our lips. I already know that. I already know that because there's fresh application by the Holy Spirit every single day. And every time I read something, it's like the first time I've read it again and again. With apathy had come unbelief, and with unbelief had come a hindrance of Jesus moving. I like Mark's gospel, how it says, oh, except that he laid hands on a few people and healed them. (laughs) 
it's like this cartoon, uh, Oliver's Company or Oliver and Company. Never actually saw it, only saw the preview. But in the preview, there's this little chihuahua who's like smoking a stogie. I don't know why. I've only seen the preview. And he says, if this is torture, chain me to the wall. Right? If that's not a miracle, (laughs) then oh goodness. Jesus laid hands on a few people and healed them. Gosh, do you see his high priestliness? Just it's ready to come out and be used for the people that he would still have compassion and sympathize with their wandering, ignorant hearts, that even in Nazareth, he still laid hands on a few people and healed them. In verse 12 of Hebrews, it says, for though by this time, Hebrews 5, 12, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. And you've come to need milk and not solid food. If I may read the Phillips translation. At a time when you should be teaching others, you need teachers yourselves to repeat to you the ABCs of God's revelation to men. By now the Hebrews should be leading home fellowships and having core groups, leading discipleship groups. They should have been teaching in children's ministry. And yet they were at this immature place because of a laziness in their heart. Too familiar with Jesus. Grew up in the church. Knew all the answers. And they had to be taught again and again and again the elementary principles of the faith. Chapter 6 verse 1 is going to say. The author wanted to give them the solid food of Melchizedek. But they were bored the second the word Melchizedek came out of his mouth. He couldn't give them this solid food. They were adult infants, babies in Christ, adults wearing diapers and drinking Similac. They'd been taught for years, but still wanted the bottle, the milk, and the pacifier. And you know what? The American church is not far from that. Now we pray that our church doesn't become that. Just wanting milk. 20 minute sermons, Rory. Lots of jokes, entertainment. Get those projectors popping, man. Let's get a smoke you know, machine going up here. Entertain me. Dance, monkey. Dance. It's a good word for the church today. Are you making disciples? Are you teaching others? Titus chapter 2 says that the men should be teaching the younger men, the older women should be teaching the younger women how to be chaste and homemakers, obedient to their husbands. Women, are you making disciples? Are you teaching others? And I'm excited where God is taking our church. He's leading us to be very intentional in equipping every member of our body to be able to serve and teach others. There's a lot of prayer. There's a lot of discussion going on on how exactly God would do that in our church with intentionality among the leadership. Until that happens, get in the word. Be at what we've presented for you so that you may grow. Listen to teachings online. We'll direct you to some wonderful resources. Start developing teeth. The Hebrew people here wanted milk and not solid food. And we remember just a couple weeks ago, I got to stand. 
In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, that the Corinthian church was so carnal that Paul couldn't talk to them the way that he knew the Spirit would have him. He said, you're carnal, you're behaving like mere men. I fed you with milk and not with solid food, for until now you were not able to receive it, and even now you're not able. John Brown, again, a Scottish preacher, said, by their indolence, the neglect of proper nourishment, they had spoiled their spiritual appetite. They had spoiled the power of digestion and had brought themselves to a state of second childhood. Are you warned at all that our neglect could ruin our appetite? And man, I've had a lot of conversations with my son and with my daughter. We're, we're driving and the words come out of his mouth. I'm bored. And I'm just like, son, you know what? We need to pray and we need to battle because we live in a culture that has to be entertained 24-7. And parents, this is for us. That our kids have to spend every hour in front of the TV, have to, you know, we, we live in an age where I've got two devices right here. They can just watch movies until they, you know, we're puking Netflix, okay? I don't know how you do that, but it happens. You know, they, they've got games and they've got just images and light flashing before their eyes and then come in and sit down and let's read the scriptures and let's just be still and listen to what the Holy Spirit would teach us tonight. Are you kidding me? No way. Guys, we got to watch this. We got to guard against this dull of hearing in our own children. I understand. I was part of the video game generation. But son, man, we got to watch taking a good thing and making it a God thing. We'll lose our appetite for the scripture. It's something that can really happen. Verse 13, for everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a baby. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 16 says that apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers have been given to the church so that the saints might be equipped for the work of the ministry so that the body of Christ can be built up, so that we would all be unified in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God. The opposite of that is in Ephesians 4, children who are tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men. If we are not instructing our children and bringing them up in the training and admonition of the Lord, and, and teaching ourselves likewise, growing and maturing. We're going to be these children that can only drink milky. You know, my kids every day since they were born have needed hot chocolate, hot milky in the morning. And it is like their heroin. It is like their crack. They do not function until they get that. It has to be in their princess sippy cup and their lightning McQueen sippy cup, right? And you know, Russell, he's like first grader cruising with his blankies, got his Lightning McQueen cup, and he's like, hot chocolate, hot milky. You know, I'm like, bro, you gotta like not call it that anymore. You're gonna get beat up at school. <laughs> and he's seven. How sad is it when, you know, we got 50-year-old people that are like, bring me the milky, daddy. My blankie and my milky. You know, <laughs> bro, mature. Mature. Don't be a child tossed to and fro, carried about by every wind of doctrine. 
If a baby only drinks milk and is never weaned, you've got a problem. He will grow sick. He won't grow right. If you'll permit me to read an article from pediatrics.com, infants and toddlers who drink much more than 16 to 24 ounces of milk a day can have problems with constipation, but the biggest problem is usually all of the extra calories they're getting from the milk they're drinking. These extra calories usually either cause a child to be full and not want to eat many other nutritious foods, and they'll become underweight. Or if they're still eating well, then all of the extra calories can lead to their becoming overweight. If you decide that it's necessary, an easy way to cut back on his milk intake is to simply not fill up his sippy cup. Can you apply that to today? It's like, man, let's get into the meat. Let's get into the meat of the word. Now, don't get me wrong. As adults, even physically, milk is still a big part of our lives, but it's not our only food source. Milk gives us all kinds of great vitamins, things that our body needs anyways, as the old milk commercial goes. First Peter actually tells us that as newborn babes, we're to desire the pure milk of the word that we might grow. If indeed that you've tasted that the Lord is gracious. I like this, just a a study on milk. Aren't you stoked you're here right now? According to the National Academy of Sciences, children and adults should drink 16 ounces of milk a day. Teens should drink even more. And so as we're talking about the word being milk, every day we need to be drinking the milk of the word. And teens need it more. (laughs) Oh, Do we have teens in here tonight? Any teenagers? All right. Are you drinking your milk, Gracie? No? It does the body good. Okay. Verse 14, back in uh, Hebrews 5. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age. That is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. The solid food is for the mature. Those who have been practicing and developing through experience the power to discriminate between what is good for them and what is bad for them. James tells us that we all stumble in many things. If anyone does not stumble in word, he's a perfect mature man, able to bridle the whole body. As we speak of this maturity and growing through the right diet, through listening, through hearing, do not being dull of hearing, I want to ask you, in your Christian maturity, I want everyone here, are you listening? In your Christian maturity, are you in the same place that you were a year ago, or have you grown? Have you developed? Look two years ago, are you in the, you're the exact same, struggling in the same sins, you you're reading your Bible the same amount, you know, which is, you know, none or little, you know, uh, your prayer life is the same amount. Are, are you growing? Are you fellowshipping more? Are you spending time alone with the Lord in his word, in prayer, in silence, just to hear from him? Are you serving in the church? Where do you want to be in a year or in five years? Just exactly where you are now? Or do you want to grow and mature? 
One of the most heartbreaking things is to see a person who's not maturing physically. And that's where many people in the church are today. Chapter 6, we're just going to read the first three verses here. Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection. Not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, these elementary principles of Christ. Of the doctrine of baptism, of laying on of hands, of resurrection from the dead, of eternal judgment. We see some of the just more elementary principles. We should understand salvation by grace through faith. We should understand what repentance is in our life. We should be growing in those very elementary ABC principles. We should understand like baptism and that the Lord calls us to be baptized out of obedience. It's what he's called us to do, not for salvation, out of obedience. And yet we have a hang up in the church of baptism. Either, you know, many Christians are saved for years and they never get baptized or many Christians believe you have to be baptized to be saved or the infants should be baptized, and you get hung up on that. It's a very basic principle of the faith. Even the disciples of Apollos had to mature in their understanding of baptism in Acts 19. The idea of laying on of hands, resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. Elementary, my dear Watson. Some things that I have on my heart that are often elementary principles to move beyond is, first of all, reading your Bible consistently. Just growing in your personal time with the Lord and hearing from his word. Psalm 119 shows for the longest chapter in the Bible how beautiful the word is. How necessary it is in our life. Not doing it legalistically because your pastor is going to ask you, your elder is going to ask you, what have you been reading in the word so you have to do it. But reading because you love the Lord and you recognize he wants to speak to you. He wants to uh, convict you. He wants to conform you into his image. Elementary principles like having a prayer life, being able to pray, not being ashamed to pray, understanding the power of prayer, listening to God's heart in prayer, recognizing spiritual warfare. Some of those things begin to become more mature things. We begin to learn, oh man, there's battle going on. Let's, let's do warfare right now. Being a doer of the word, tithing very elementary principle of our faith, being in fellowship, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, neglecting fellowship, but exhorting one another so much more as you see the day approaching. That we would grow in our attitude of worship, moving from I'm bored, I'm tired, I'm uncomfortable, to you are worthy, God, and I want to worship you. Moving away from going to church to be entertained, and growing in maturity, wanting to be with the Lord, be edified, be fed, worship the Lord, and pour into others and serve others. To grow in serving, true true mark of spiritual maturity, a servant's heart, wanting to serve the Lord, wanting to serve the church, being a witness. And verse three says here, and this we will do if God permits. We'll move beyond these elementary principles, these, these, these ABCs, if the Lord wills. I believe the Lord wills. I believe that's why it's written. It's rhetorical. 
This we will do if God permits. So we pray tonight as the worship team comes up. We pray tonight that the Lord would unclog our ears, our spiritual ears, that we wouldn't be dull of hearing. I remember in chemistry class in high school, they brought in this uh, cotton stick and they stuck it in this kid's ear and lit the top on fire and the flame and the smoke and everything, it causes a vacuum. And it began to pull everything out of this guy's ear up into this stick. And later on, they cut it open and it was rather disgusting. But I can't help but think of that when I think of Christians who are dull of hearing, their ears are clogged. And it's like, Lord, just like, (sighs) clean us, Lord, so we can hear from you. So that when we get to a Hebrews chapter five study and Rory begins with the great high priest, we're like, it's gotta be awesome. It's in Hebrews. There's gotta be a reason that we're there tonight. Bring it, Holy Spirit. Show me that when we hear of Melchizedek, we're not just like, oh my gosh, you've gotta be kidding me. But we'd be like, what? All right, ready to grow, ready to learn. Ready to see Jesus. Ephesians 3, Paul prays for the Ephesians that he would grant them to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man, that they might be able to comprehend what is the width and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ with surpasses knowledge. Guys, the Lord has a lot to teach us and to show us. We have not arrived. We don't know at all. We're gonna read the story of Noah's Ark like a thousand more times before we die. And every time we read it, he is gonna speak the gospel and show us something radical about himself in it. Don't grow dull of hearing. No matter how many times you get to a passage. May we understand the width, the length, the depth, and the height this love of Christ that passes knowledge. Why don't we stand and we'll just close in song tonight. Lord, we just cry out for a work of your spirit as the sword of the spirit goes out. We studied last week how it is effective. It's powerful. It's living the word of God, and that it just knows just our spirit. It knows our heart. It knows everything about us. Your word is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And Lord, we need to just be filleted open tonight, God. We need to have your word just like clean out our spiritual ears. And Lord, take our heart that is just so deceived by the world. We're so quickly distracted. We just are so dull of hearing. And Lord, tonight, Lord, for your sake, for your kingdom, for your bride, Lord, would you mature us, God? Those that are, have been saved for decades, Lord, that you want to grow. You want them to be teachers, Lord, would you just give them a hunger for the meat, the solid food. Lord, the the youth that were in here tonight, 
Lord, may even tonight they just, they hear from you and they just say, man, I just, I don't have much of an appetite for the scriptures. I'd honestly rather watch TV or read novels or just anything, but spend time in the scriptures. Lord, just speak to them tonight that you have more for them or that you desire to grow them up into maturity that they might be teachers for you. Lord, our body, we just have a desire to be equipped for the ministry and just hearing just the cry from the people. Just We want to be equipped so that we can serve and be useful. And Lord, even let tonight, just this humble Bible study, just be the beginning of that in our church. Lord, give us teeth. Let us cut teeth tonight. Lord, that we could chew on the word. Lord, as we got to just hear some just incredible things about you being our high priest. Lord, we just want to receive that. Lord, we thank you for you just sympathizing with us and you're able to aid us and help us and you became one of us, Lord, that you might experientially know and represent us and make the sacrifice for us. Lord, just give us an excitement to go back and read Leviticus and just see how it points to you. Let us be a church that loves your word. Let us be a church that just actively seeks to grow. And Lord, when you do that, Lord, we'll give you all the glory. Let's just close in song tonight. And if we could have someone go grab the children out of the back, they can come in and worship with us as we close down. You've been listening to Pastor Rory Rogers, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County, located in Primeville, Oregon. For more information on this ministry, or if you'd like to contribute, please feel free to write us at P.O. Box 378, Primeville, Oregon 97754, or check us out further at our website at www.calvarycrookcounty.com. We thank you so much for listening, and we pray that this ministry has blessed you.